Every week, every day, there are discoveries that will shape our future. The Research Beat, brought to you by Audemic, speaks to the unsung heroes of groundbreaking research and those laying the foundations for the advances of tomorrow. Why? Because we believe the more we discover, the more we connect the dots, the more we push our understanding of the world forward. One, two, three, four. Hello, curious minds, and a very warm welcome to The Research Beat with me, your host, Jordan Krasinski. Today, we're going to be talking about maths with our guest, Dr. Charles Ruddy. Charles has a BA in mathematics from Trinity College, Cambridge, and a PhD in economics from Princeton. He's lectured in mathematics and economics at Oxford and Cambridge universities, and he's a fellow at Sydney Sussex College, Cambridge. In addition, he is the founder and CEO of Somatic. So, Charles, welcome to the show. Pleasure to be here, Jordan. Wonderful to have you. So, Charles, let's get started. Can you tell us what does Somatic do? Well, it's a, a platform for um, online assessment and resources for quantitative subjects, so maths and STEM subjects. So we work with maths at school level and we tend to work with STEM subjects at universities. And uh, the aim is to present questions and learning materials which are, are very authentic. So, for example, uh, student answers, they're not just multiple choice, but the system can understand formula answers, equation answers, steps of working, matrices, etc. And uh, we also try to present graphical explanations in a, a similar way to how you might present them on a whiteboard. So it's more interactive than what you would see in, in a static textbook. So overall, it's an interactive textbook for maths and STEM subjects. And I think the idea with all of these exercises is practicality, accessibility, understanding for students, right? That's that's right. Yeah, it aims to be a very effective learning process for students so that they can take in some quite hard concepts in step by step uh, approaches. So really drawing on um, the experience of what you would do in a lecture, building things up a step at a time. How can we actually convey that in an online platform that's better than just a, a PDF that's, that's put on on a screen? So why did you found it? Well, there are hundreds of millions of people in education at any one time, so it's uh, it, it's clearly an enormous challenge to get them all learning effectively with the best you know, best uh, teaching methods and approaches. And uh, what's the potential of, of technology to actually allow the best uh, content, the best learning methods to be conveyed uh, has always been a question in my mind. And so when I was teaching, I would think about, you know, what, what am I doing? Is there a method? But also, uh, could a computer do this? And uh, that's not just the question of could a computer take my job, um, which is a fear of many people, but also, you know, can, can the best methods of learning and assessment be reproduced in order to reach um, many more people than would just sit in, in one classroom? So what I, I wanted to do more than than just have have the best method I could for uh, the few people sitting in front of me, but can this be actually expanded and scaled out uh, so we can take the best education and uh, distribute it effectively using software? It's a very nice idea. And do you find generally that students have a really good experience with Somatic? Um, yes, I developed it based based on my experiences of what is needed for a complete solution. And uh, we've had some very good feedback from students that actually validates that, which I was very, very pleasantly surprised with. So 
um, that the aspects that they quite like are, uh, first of all, when they do a question, they have a chance to correct answers and they have a chance to do new randomized variants. And uh, they find that quite an anxiety-free method of, of, of learning because they're not faced with, they get it right or wrong and that's it. And they also, they also like the convenience. I think convenience is very important for students, uh, especially these days. Uh, whether we've got an app and then they do a question and there are links to the relevant materials that are right there. So putting things together for them in, in one place um, is a, a typical academic task, but uh, they, they like it when it's done very, uh, very simply. So it's not exam conditions, which, which does it, take some it, of the pressure off. Yes, it's generally we haven't been used a lot in exam conditions because exam conditions need a lot of extras for online assessment. You need proctoring solutions. So there are people talking to us about using in exams, but likely to be later on in the year. And most of the work we do is is on the formative side, uh, getting students to, to grips with materials not, rather than exams. So Charles, tell us, what are the mathematical challenges? The students typically face when they're moving from school to university, which is why the app was designed. Well, this is a very, uh, very broad question because there are many different university degrees and there are also different levels of prerequisites. So some students are coming in with GCSEs, some students coming with A levels and they're going to, to do different STEM subjects that have different quantitative requirements. But uh, usually there is there's there is a very large um, hill to climb wherever that hill is positioned. Um, for example, um, students may be coming into a biosciences degree or an economics degree and might have just GCSE mathematics. So then in the first year, they have to learn um, how to do advanced statistics, handle data sets, uh, do various hypothesis tests. Um, they may have to learn a whole calculus course. And this is a very, very large jump from GCSE, which they have to make during the first year while they're doing all sorts of other courses. And it's often in just a few weeks uh, of, of teaching. So when I hear that from academics, I feel like it's an almost impossible challenge, but uh, it'd be really enjoyable for me to take part in that challenge and to help students to get up that hill. So on that point, almost one in three students in the UK are dissatisfied by the current level of assessment and feedback on their course. And again, this is another reason why you developed the app, but why do you think they're so dissatisfied? Well, it, it's really hard to give good feedback to a large, large group of students who are doing lots of work all the time. It's very time consuming uh, to give good feedback. And if, if, if hundreds of students are doing a course, it's, a, it's often an industrial process of, of marking and uh, assessing their work. Um, if, if I get an exam, then I get a, a huge pile of, of papers. And because it's an exam, I take it very seriously. And for every sentence they make, I try to figure out, is this on, on the right lines? Is it a valid step? If it's ambiguous, I try to figure out what is in the student's mind. But that is a, that's an enormous amount of time and effort, which, which can't be maintained through the whole of the year. Um, so it's, it's really hard to solve that challenge. And that's where I think computers uh, do come in. And uh, the ideal situation, in my opinion, is if if computerized assessment, automated assessment can tackle um, you know, a majority of the work for assessment where we're teaching students how to do methods, um, solve problems, they can do that online, get assessed online. And then for those uh, questions that require um, more complex answers, whether essays, extended reasoning, structured arguments that are being presented by students, then bring in humans, academics to, to evaluate those. In my opinion, that's the best balance of, of time and quality.
that sounds like a good balance. And I was going to ask about the explanatory element of some maths problems. Obviously, it's not possible for a, a computer program to be able to give that detailed explanation that might allow a student to understand. Yes, well, um, uh, these computers that, that are doing assessment, they're not thinking themselves. So ultimately, the explanation is written in some form by, by a, a, a person, an academic who is programming the system. So it is possible to, to give good explanations on, on a question. And even if that question is, is randomized and has different variants, you can give uh, explanations that are adapt to, 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 to those settings. So um, I think you know, seeing explanations and um, seeing how things are done is, is very possible for a computer system. The only thing that's quite hard for computers is to evaluate student answers if they are very complex and structured and have and have intricate uh, layers of argument and explanation. So that's, that's when I think humans uh, need to take over. And these various problems that you designed Somatic to solve, did you experience or identify these problems during your own academic career? That's an interesting question. And funnily enough, the answer is no, because um, I, I think I, I've taught at, at places which have the, the luxury of, of um, having huge resources in the form of college endowments in addition to uh, student fees. Um, and, and with these huge resources, they employ huge manpower to uh, to tackle these problems. So we are able to give students here uh, a really good experience of, of assessment and we, we can look closely at their answers and discuss with them in person. But that that can't be scaled out to to uh, to everyone. The, uh, the resources are just just too too enormous for that. So it, instead, it, it inspired me by showing what is what is the ideal uh, learning environment. And then how much of that could we actually um, replicate in an online setting and uh, reproduce at scale? It's a fine idea to take your experiences and the quality of education that you received, put it all together and see if you can present it to anybody and share it with them uh, to allow them to learn it, you know, at their own pace in an effective style. Yeah. So I think you touched on it earlier slightly, but how have the last two years of restrictions affected students' abilities to transition mathematically from school to university? Uh, that's an interesting question because it's um, when when the, the the lockdowns happened, um, I would have expected we've got uh, perhaps a, a, a three months of learning loss on average, and then we're going to find students are just set back academically by three months when they when they arrive. Um, but it's actually a lot more more complex than that. And there are, there are so many elements that have been affected. Um, so I think we do see students coming into programs a bit less prepared academically, and we focus on quantitative skills. And there is a bit less less preparation when I talk to universities out there. But it's not just the lockdowns and the, the online teaching and the differences between different types of schools. Um, it's not just that. It's also that the assessment system was disrupted. So we had um, a couple of years of teacher assessed exams, which meant, meant there was a, a, a lot of inflation, which meant that um, students were going to very different universities than where they would have gone before. Very large cohorts uh, at universities with a higher admission standards. So um, that means that there was their students going into harder programs than they would have gone to before. So that also exacerbates the gaps that students and uh, university departments will feel. We also have 
not just academic learning losses, but also social, organizational, and and personally teaching uh, here in in one of the Cambridge colleges, I haven't witnessed a lot of academic gaps. Actually, I find students academically have come in uh, well prepared, but um, we have found personal and organizational uh, gaps that it's 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 taking time for students to relearn how to. Um, uh, how to discuss with each other, how to collaborate, how to organize themselves. I think a lot of people used to have been sitting in, in, a, in a bedroom uh, learning for a year um, and now having to take take the time to figure out what it's like to engage with people uh, in, in person and what it's like to organize themselves in ways that they didn't have to do when everything was online. So something I didn't expect was to find that, that non-academic issues are often more important resulting from the, uh, the the disruptions of COVID. And did you notice that the situation drove up interest in your platform or alternatively, did it make you think that it was more important, that there really was a more of a call for platforms like this? Yes, I mean, we didn't catch the, uh, the early wave of it just launching a year ago, but certainly uh, departments are very interested in, in, in preparation for students. And if, and if they are less certain about the, the, the level of students coming in, then, uh, then there's a greater, you know, greater interest in, in preparing them. But I think that this is something ongoing. Universities have been preparing for uh, the transition to university for, for a long time, and it's, it's part of this long an ongoing process of digitization, uh, the use of online platforms to help to help that process. Because, you know, it, it even before COVID, the gap between school and university was a was a big, big challenge. You got more and more students going into STEM subjects. And so more and more students need to be trained in the relevant quantitative skills. One, two, three, four. The research beat is brought to you by the Audemic app a platform for students and researchers which allows you to listen to academic articles and take notes easily. On the go and simple to share. So Charles, in this next section, we're going to talk about some of the issues in academia that are most important to you. So what have you observed? while visiting multiple university departments across the country and indeed across the world? Well, it's been very, uh, it's been very eye-opening op because I was, um, I've just worked in a couple of um, economics departments and I never really uh, even worked out how the de those departments function because I was just giving my lectures, uh, doing the exams, etc. Um, so uh, seeing how departments take, take decisions is quite, uh, is quite interesting. Um, and they they certainly do it in, in in different ways, and the use of technology is is very varied. Um, so if, if we start with technology, I do see uh, vastly different levels of adoption and preparedness when it comes to uh, uh, digital digital tools for learning. Some of them have had academics that have worked on creating systems uh, over over years, and then have recently been able to deploy preparatory systems, supporting systems to give students resources, assessments for preparation and their first year. So a few a few departments are ahead of the game. Um, a lot of them are starting to think about digital tools, maybe using a few from their learning management systems, and quite a lot haven't started to think about this and um, are interested in a student preparation and resources, but haven't really made a start yet. So very wide uh, variety of levels of resource for, for students um, that, that I've seen. 
I, I also find differences in the ways that decisions get get taken. Often the the, the organizational structures um, are are good at making certain sorts of decisions, like who should lecture this course, um, how uh, how should we organize our teaching assistants, and you know go about the process of being a department. But when it comes to um, making a change, adopting something new, some departments certainly more open and have the ability to take those decisions. Other departments, they get interested, but the processes aren't there for decision making. Um, so, so certainly, certainly a lot of differences around decision making processes, too. Can things really get slowed down at the departmental level? Yes, it it often is slow. I think if we if we go from um, fast examples to slow examples, then um, I think business schools tend to be uh, really the, the fastest uh, and can often manage their own resources. And if they see a need, they say, oh, "Let's let's try it. Let's go ahead." Then uh, a few weeks later, we see we're actually preparing the solution and have got all the contracts set up, etc. So. It is possible for for business schools and and some departments to move uh, move fast, uh, but typically it's a process that that might take a a year of of thinking. Yeah, perhaps an academic that's responsible for a quantitative course gets interested, then makes a proposal. There are there are some lines of communication that um, sometimes are standards and sometimes are just testing whether colleagues have the right are the right people to talk to. Um, and and that process can take a long time, and so the important thing there is that we um we we have that process at the right time of the year, so it can go ahead in the next year, because otherwise it becomes a two year process. So varies from being something that can happen within a, a two or three weeks to something that can take over a year. And we're talking about implementing changes. In your view, does the kind of the pace of these changes in departments have a knock-on effect on students and researchers who are working within a university? I think that departments are, are, are most interested in identifiable problems. So where they are going from one course to the next, but don't quite have the right skills to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, so if we can fix those problems, that's the low-hanging fruit, I'd say. So where the existing core structure uh, can be maintained, but we just make it easier for, for students to follow follow through that. Um, now, in theory, they might be able to accelerate a core structure uh, where, where they say, well, actually, um, can, can, can you do this material before you start or, or write, the, write in your first term uh, with this computer-assisted method? Then maybe we can add more quantitative um, uh, courses later. Um, it doesn't usually work like that, but uh, we are talking to some departments that are deciding whether to take a more quantitative or a non-quantitative approach. Um, you know, economics is a subject, for example, where there are quantitative degrees, non-quantitative degrees, and having a having a um, a platform that can help with quantitative um, learning and assessments um, I, I, uh, can influence that decision. So we're going to take a look at a couple of articles and a couple of issues in your field, Charles. This first article, Using Game Theory Mathematics to Resolve Human Conflicts. Now, before we go into this, uh, I wonder if you could just give us a quick overview of what game theory is. Well, it's a it's a very a general field which uh, looks at the actions people take in situations where their choices are interacting and their incentives are interacting. So how do people and organizations 
um, manage situations where they are acting together, where their choices are interacting, and where they have you know, similar or conflicting incentives. Um, now, it's a very general description because this sort of thing is can can be applied uh, to to many many fields. Um, the the agents concerned they could be people in teams, they could be uh, countries that are that are interacting in a in an international relations setting. They could be businesses. Um, they could even be um, plants and animals in an evolutionary biology setting where where they're interacting in a predator prey or, or 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 they can even be trees in a forest deciding whether to grow high or wide so uh, it's a very general generalizable setting and that generality has allowed it to take over a lot of economic modeling over the last 50 years and we have actually a really interesting example here of those conflicting ideas, intentions, and standpoints. So Professor Niles Bonnefeld, a social and environmental scientist at the University of Stirling, carried out a series of investigations into conflicts between people who on one hand want to use resources for biodiversity, and on the other hand who want to use resources for growing food. And these games were developed and carried out uh, concerning a variety of situations from Scotland to Gabon. So this is a very complicated issue. And, and I wonder what you think about using game theory to try to solve these kinds of problems. How does it work? Well, the way that they used um, game theory was actually more using games uh, to to, to try to solve the problems. And it was very entrepreneurial. So not your standard game theory paper that appears in a journal. Uh, they actually wrote an app that, that gets people to participate in games where these games have an ecological uh, component. Quite entrepreneurial, an entrepreneurial way of doing this because they built this to be engaging so that they could get lots of data. And um, it looks like they analyze that data from the point of view of um, uh, qualitative analysis, I think, so that they could see how do people engage with these games? How did they interact with each other? Um, what was enabling cooperation? Um, it's, I think it's a mix of qualitative and quantitative um, analysis. So um, actually, Experimental experimental game theory is a, is a, is, a, is a big uh, is a big thing in the research field because we don't just want to understand how theoretical agents play games with complete rationality and maximum ability to uh, to work out the best strategies. We also want to know how do how do, do ordinary people how do real organisations play games. So uh, I would say this this work is more more in that setting of experimental games. Usually experimental games are done in very controlled settings where a group of participants, often they're students, they come into a, to a room, they're given certain financial incentives, and then they make strategies in control settings, which gives you some degree of reliability, some degree of scientific validity, at least within that group of people for, for, for rewards that are fairly small. Um, but I think this, the research that was done by um, Butterfield and others was a bit wider ranging than that, um, a bit less controlled, but more data. And I think that that is, that is what we're, we're seeing in the world out there. Lots and lots of data, perhaps not, not very controlled, but we can, we can try to glean, glean, glean what insights we can from it. Well, the article was very clear that the, the landowners involved in these various cases had very heated opinions. 
And it's it's interesting to think about how those, you know, complicated, nuanced opinions can be worked into mathematical modeling and games which might have a, a, a worthwhile outcome in terms of helping people in situations. Yeah, the trouble with, with uh, game theory is that it can get very complex very quickly if you try to add um, add a lot of features, whether the way in which people form opinions, uh, whether it's various sorts of emotions. So uh, it's usually good for understanding uh, one of those things at a time, um, but but not multiple things because it goes beyond our ability to analyze those models. Um, but I, I think they were getting some quite interesting um, qualitative results about the effect of being able to communicate on the ability to resolve problems. And also uh, they mentioned they mentioned the effect of um, incentives, which is is always always a good good thing to measure when we're we're doing policy and economics. Uh, let me see. It was it was incentives. Uh, it was incentives of conservation efforts and the and the the, the effectiveness of that. Uh, so they were getting some quite quite interesting survey data on 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 potentially the effectiveness of of incentives of conservation out of these games where they got lots of people to engage. So Charles, you wanted to say something about polarization in this study. Um, yes, because there was there was uh, some other research um, in in this article by um, Aubrey, and um, he was looking at um, what were the, what are the dynamics of polarization, uh, which we're seeing so much of these days that it's a massively important topic. And uh, what he was finding was that um, people people aren't just in just in bubbles that exist, but these bubbles were strengthened by the incentives to to appeal to and get approval from similar people. Um, so what, what are the dynamics of, of, of bubbles? I think it's, it's, it's such, a, such an important question for the modern world um, because these bubbles are, are, so, are so limiting to the process of thought, the process of you're know, gaining knowledge and objectivity. And just to clarify, these bubbles are situations or structures where you have a number of people who are kind of aligned or contained within a particular ideology yeah contained in a particular ideology so they don't hear the um other perspectives and information which doesn't confirm the bubble that they are that they are in is um is not going to get not going to penetrate so so these things are, are really interesting to model and try to understand and then see you know because the bigger question is can can we continue to live in democracies in a situation where actual objective information doesn't reach people because they all live in bubbles. Um, and I think, um, you know, the, their identification of the incentives that are involved in bubbles is, 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 is really, really, really important. Now, I'm focused on teaching now as an academic and through my startup somatic, but um, this sort of thing actually wants me to make go back into research and, and try to uh, figure this out because somehow we need to put together why are we having these these bubbles and this polarization? And can we can, can we achieve a situation where we can combine hierarchy with independence? Uh, where the hierarchy is that that some people have got to the point where they are becoming experts or have been um, approved as as people who understand understand things well. And can we have these groups that are trusted and can communicate information more widely? Um, in, is that compatible with the polarization and bubble formation that we see at the moment? So, Charles, 
we're going to close today with quite a big question for you. Why does maths matter? Well, maths has become the, uh, the, the methodology of, of so many subjects out there. And it's been a gradual, gradual progress really over, the, over, over millennia where it's taken over, first of all, physical sciences, um, then, then taking over um, economics, we've actually started with game theory was over the last 50 to 70 years. Um, and now there are so many subjects that that uh, previously weren't mathematical, but um, now have a lot of data and require data analysis and require more and more statistics. Um, so this is not a general answer to 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 why why is it the case that 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 has emerged over time, but we are, we are suddenly see more and more more quantitative trends within within subjects. Uh, we see rise of STEM subjects that require requires um, quantitative skills to, to, to build up those 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 theories and models and we require more and more data these days and that's a that's a very new new thing um, where over the last last um, 10 years there's just been an explosion of data and people who otherwise would be in, in, in fields that that were more discursive are now having to deal with uh, with data and even in the humanities, I'm told that there are there are now databases of um, uh, databases of, of of articles and research and and research words and many uh, researchers spend their time in these databases, uh, querying, searching, um, performing uh, quite quantitative studies actually. So, so the most the most recent answer to that question is that it, this this um, preponderance of data that has that that is cropping up all over the place, and we are measuring more and more things and having to analyze those measures. So researchers, you're going to need maths far into the future. <laughs> Certainly, researchers, but uh, I think even people going into to regular jobs need to answer the question of how do we use data to do our jobs more effectively. Definitely. And Charles, finally, how can our listeners reach you if they're interested in getting in contact with you? You can write to me at the shortest email is cr250 at cam.ac.uk, which is my academic email address. Um, or if you're interested in the work I'm doing with uh, quantitative assessment and resources, then go to the sumatic.co.uk page. That's S-U-M-M-A-T-I-C. And you'll be able to find my uh, contact details there as well. Wonderful. And can they also reach you on social media? Um, yes, I tend to limit my social media usage these days, but um, you can find me on LinkedIn as well, Charles Roddy. Fantastic. Charles, thank you so much. It's been an absolute pleasure to have you today. A wonderful conversation. It's a great conversation, Jordan. Thank you. For more on Charles, you can find him on social media or head to the Somatic website. And if you want to listen to the latest research, organise, take notes and share, sign up for your free trial of Audemic at audemic.io or follow us on Twitter, LinkedIn and Instagram.